Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Popular Music, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. In this episode, I talk with David Kirby about his book, Little Richard, The Birth of Rock and Roll, published in 2009 by Continuum. In Little Richard, Kirby uses Tutti Frutti, the song with the ever-memorable opening salvo of a wop bop a loom a lop bam boom as the tipping point through which Richard Wayne Penniman goes from young, unknown wannabe star to Little Richard, international rock and roll sensation. Indeed, the book's five chapters are organized around this premise. Chapter 1 focuses on Richard's growing up years in Macon, Georgia, where, as black and gay, and through the sacred and secular influences of Sister Rosetta Tharp, Louis Jordan, and Escarita, he develops a particular ability to outrage. In Chapter 2, Kirby presents early to mid-20th century Macon, everybody's other hometown, as a perfect example of what Griot Marcus calls the old, weird America. It was officially segregated, yet unofficially integrated, a place where, as in America's entire history, hucksters and entrepreneurs compete for riches and stardom, a place of drag queens and medicine shows. In short, Kirby presents Makem as a logical place to birth a sacredly queer African-American rock and roller. Chapter 3 focuses on the making of Tutti Frutti itself, showing well how any successful recording, let alone one of the greatest of all time, is a collaborative effort between artists, producers, label owners, studio personnel, songwriters, and more. All the important characters in the song's making are presented here. Chapter 4 looks at the impact Little Richard and Tutti Frutti had on the nascent teen rock and roll culture at large. The song's nonsensical lyrics paired with an insistent backbeat, formed where the deliberate meets the accidental, influenced many a teenager, black and white, straight and gay, to shake their booties. Finally, Chapter 5 examines Richard's place in American cultural history, his place in as, as an artist of unmatched excellence in his sixth decade of performing, his place as the architect of rock and roll. David Kirby lives in Tallahassee, Florida, which is where I reached him for this interview. Hello, David, and welcome to New Books and Popular Music. Matt, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm doing great today. Okay. Well, uh, before we get uh, directly to your book, why don't you tell us a little bit about your biography, where are you from, etc.? Sure. I uh, I grew up on a, a farm in uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I, I was uh, born as World War II was winding down. And um, I went to uh, LSU, Louisiana State University, which is a big uh, sort of, uh, you know, football-loving kind of democratic uh, place and had a good, broad uh, public university education there. Then I went off to Johns Hopkins uh, to to graduate school, studied English, got a got a Ph.D. at Hopkins, and uh, decided that I would, since I'd lived in the South all my life, and I thought of Baltimore as, as the South, I thought, well, I'm going to, you know, uh, take a job uh, some other part of the country and learn what they're doing. When I got job offers, there actually were academic jobs back in those days. I had uh, five authors offers from Southern schools, so I came to Florida State University, and I've, I've been here since 1969. Wow, your your only job, huh? Mm-hmm. Perfect. Only job I've ever had. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
Uh, how did you uh, come to write this book specifically, Little Richard? Well, uh, you know, uh, poetry pays the bills uh, at my house, Matt. Uh, my wife, Barbara Hamby, and I are both poets and both uh, professors who teach it at Florida State. And uh, there's, there's no such thing as a famous poet, but you can move from, uh, shall we say, absolute obscurity to relative obscurity. Uh, so I, I worked my way up to that point, which meant that a lot of uh, people on newspapers and magazines were asking me to write about poetry, and I, I did that and did that and did that over and over and over. And uh, finally, I, I thought, well, you know, I, I need to shake it up a little bit here. So uh, I guess about 10 years ago, I decided to reinvent myself as a music journalist. I'd always loved music and, and had a good uh, fan's knowledge of it. So I began to read more and I began to ask some of the people who'd had me write about poetry to let me write about music. So I, I covered a lot of um, live concerts, so people like Willie Nelson and Bob Dylan, um, Gas Great, Marcus Roberts, uh, Soul Reviver, Sharon Jones, and the, and the Dap Kings, you know, just whoever, whoever came to town, really. And meanwhile, I was writing articles and uh, uh, reviews for the New York Times Book Review, the Chicago Tribune, uh, Washington Post, and other places like that, and just found out that you know I knew more and more about music as I went along. So I said, "Well, time to time to bust a big one." So I got in touch with uh, Continuum Press, uh, and uh, they have a, a beautiful little series called Thirty Three and a Third. Do you, know, do you know that series? I do know that series. It covers um, specific records and albums, right? Specific records and albums, and I, I wrote and I said, "Well, how about uh, I do something on Here's Little Richard, 1957." And uh, they they said no, and, and I said what? Because you know they they uh, part of their job it seems to me was to be pretty comprehensive and especially talk about the beginnings of rock and roll. And they said no, but uh, you know we we want to do a new series on on the lives of of the big uh, masters of rock and roll. So I was I was one of the first ones. I and a guy uh, named Joe Bonomo who teaches in. Uh, Illinois wrote a book on Jerry Lee Lewis, and I get I got to write the book on uh, Little Richard Pennyman. And and why did you choose Little Richard? Is he, have you always been a fan? What, what's the What's the reason? Well, you know, uh, I I was a fan of I've always been a fan of everybody, I guess. But there was there was one moment uh, when when I was a, a kid, uh, I had a little green plastic Westinghouse radio with a wire antenna that you would sort of you know flop out the window and and uh, I was I turned on the radio one morning in uh, probably it was probably early 1956 so I would have been 11 years old and the, the kind of songs you heard on the radio then were uh, oh Patty Page singing uh, how much is that doggy in the window how much is that doggy in the window the <laughs> one with the waggly tail how much is that doggy in the window I do wish that dog were for sale. And, you know, I, I, was, I had pets. I had dogs. I, I thought that was okay. And another big one was uh, Mitch Miller's the Yellow Rose of Texas, which begins with this military drumbeat. And then, of course, begins to sing, Oh, the Yellow Rose of Texas is the only girl for me. And, you know, I would sort of march around and think that's, that's not bad either. One day I turned on my radio and a, a, a guy said, "Wah bop a loom a la bam boom," and I thought that that is something different. That is 
And, you know, I, I wish I could say, well, this is going to change things. And, you know, rubbed my chin and said something profound. But I, I said, you know, something's going on here. You know, goodbye, Patty Page. Goodbye, uh, you know, uh, to, to the Yellow Rose of Texas. Uh, and I, you know, I, I switched my allegiances. And I, you know, already there were songs out by, uh, uh, there were some Elvis songs out. His career had really kicked in. Uh, Fats Domino and, and Chuck Berry were were uh, coming along, but uh, you know, listen to that one song. Listen to Tutti Frutti by by uh, by Little Richard. Uh, it, it hit me like a bolt of lightning. Um, you know, as I say in in the book, uh, Keith Richards, the Rolling Stones says says uh, when you hear Tutti Frutti, it's like flipping a light switch, and the world the world goes from black and white to Technicolor, which is as analogies go, is pretty darn accurate. So before we get any more to Tutti Frutti, um, uh, on page one, right off the bat, uh, you write that he is the king of rock and roll, Little Richard. And I was I, I was doing my research, and I, I went back and looked at a lot of Little Richard YouTube. YouTube's such a wonderful thing, this age we live in. And he yeah. claims himself as the king of rock and roll sometimes. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so, t- so tell me, David, who is the real king of rock and roll? Well, you know, El, you know, the, Solomon Burke uh, used to perform. He'd have a, uh, uh, you know, throne and a and a cape and a crown. And uh, you know, James Brown was uh, famous for uh, having a, one of his uh, helpers throw a cape over him on on stage, and he was, you know, throw it off, and the guy would, you know, no, 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 and anointed and make him the king again. So there, there's a lot of rock and roll uh, royalty, but uh, you know, I'm I'm, I'm going to go with Richard because of that. That uh, you know, really, the, the the one song. I as I as I say in my book, um, Isaiah Berlin, the the English philosopher, said that that uh, though the world is divided into foxes and, and hedgehogs, and that a fox is a clever creature who does uh, you know many things, uh, and, and that's that, I think that describes most of us. You know, I I I, I teach and I write and you know do a lot of things around the community. Uh, and then that's that's what a fox is, and then uh, a hedgehog is the, is the uh, is the creature that does one big thing. Uh, and you know, little little Richard's one big thing was tutti frutti, and then all the the songs that you know came out in the in the uh, in the next few years after that. I mean, he didn't have a big uh, a kind of continuing career the way somebody like Neil Young does, uh, but you know, he recorded. Uh, all the, all of those great songs, especially the one that that uh, I, you know there there's so many different versions of what the the first rock and roll song is, and it's it, those are great fun arguments to have about you know wh- which was the which was the uh, you know the, the first the first real rock and roll record, but Tutti Frutti is is the one that had the most impact. I mean, it, you know, very quickly it sold. 500,000 copies and you know what I like about uh, about YouTube as far as as uh, learning how things work if you, if you go if you put little Richard into YouTube the the first several hits that will come up will be of him playing uh, usually in movies uh, at teen parties and he's got a suit on and he's little Richard you know he's screaming and he's jumping up and he's banging on the piano and flashing flashing his teeth uh, but the, the interesting thing is, as far as that song and his career defining what he did in the musical world and in our world in general, 
is not him, but the the other people in the movie. They're teenagers, and they get up and they dance, but they don't look like teenagers. They look like grown-ups. The guys are also wearing suits. They're, they have padded shoulders. You know, they look like their dad's uh, sports jackets. And the girls have crinoline shirts, skirts with um, you know petticoats underneath them, so they'll flare out when they dance. And when the kids begin dancing. They're swing dancing, so they're doing dance. This is, you know, this is in the late 50s. They're doing dances from the 30s and 40s. They're doing, you know, between the wars kinds of dances, and they're doing flash moves. You know, the girls are are uh, spinning. Uh, you know, the, the the guys are reaching around behind their backs. You know, girls are sliding under their legs, and you know, a couple of back lifts. And they, you know, they're not doing the kinds of dances that kids were, were you know, were kind of doing in the 60s and 70s and, and forever after so what you're looking at is is the the, the moment where and this is you know a, a point it, it's one of two points i wish i'd emphasize more in my book it's, it's the point where little richard pennyman invents the teenager invents the teenager because at this time kids who were uh, 16, 17, 18 years old were imitations of their of their parents, uh, and you know I was I was that age then, so I you know I remember that that you know you wanted to be like your mom and dad. You didn't have anything, you know. You had an allowance, uh, and you know you did chores around the house, but you wore clothes like your mom and dad. You aspired to be like your mom and dad. You damn sure didn't have an automobile, you know. If you, if you got to drive a car, you would borrow your dad's car and you know you better bring it back you know clean and, and full of gas or you, you wouldn't be able to to borrow it again and the, the, what we uh you know, th- this is something it's, it's fun to talk about my with, with my students at florida state because uh the, you know the, they they participate in a youth culture that they don't even ascribe that name to you know you don't need to call it anymore it's just called being alive but but in, you know, in the the periods before they came along, it was really just one culture. There were, uh, you know, there were adults and then young people who were called aspiring adults. They dressed like adults. They thought like uh, adults. They acted like adults, and they hoped to be adults one day. And then, uh, you know, just painting with a broad brush, you can say in, in the '60s, that's when the youth culture came along. That's that's when you begin to see protest movements. That's when Dylan and the folk movements came out in Hendrix. That's when uh, you know clothing changed along with the music. And that's when kids began to say, "Look, I want to have my own car. I want to have my own room. I want to uh, you know have my own clothes. Uh, I want to wear my hair funny. Uh, I'm not going to get a flat top like like Dad had in, in uh, you know when he was on the the flight deck of the aircraft carrier in World War II. You know, I, I want to." Uh, you know, grow sideburns, or I want to grow my hair down to my my collar. You know, and and the the girls were saying, you know, I'm tired of dressing like mom. You know, I, if I want to go braless, I will. Or if I want to wear short shorts or or uh, bell bottom pants, you know, I'll I'll do that too. And of course, the marketers jumped right on. And you have, you know, uh, you sud- suddenly that they had this huge aspiring demographic that had their own money, so they could design fashions for them they could make music for them they could change the looks of of cars and make cheaper cars so the kids uh would want to drive them and uh you know little little richard is okay again he's not the only one who's responsible for that but i think he's the prime mover so this is must be what you mean by little richard is a way of looking at the world 
I think so. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, you know, uh, Matt, that's that's one reason uh, why I wanted to write this book because my students didn't really know who he was. There's a Geico commercial, and there are a couple of other things on, on one of the kids' shows. He sings the Itsy Bitsy Spider, and and they knew about that, but but they saw him as you know a sort of clownish figure, which of course he's very happy to have been, and and, and uh, you know he makes his living by touring and and uh, clowning these days, uh, and you know they didn't really know who he was, so uh, you know that was that was one thing I you know. Uh, and of course, while I had this passion that I hope is coming through in my voice today, I didn't have all the knowledge that I needed. So I, you know, I thought, well, let me find out more about him, and then I'll, you know, tell them, and I'll go farther than that, and and uh, and write this book. Uh, the uh, um, when I get off with you, a guy is going to call me from uh, Hobart and William Smith uh, College today because he's he's teaching my book in a class on uh, on the rock and roll to uh, to young people so uh yeah i'm glad i'm helping to get the word around so that's one reason why i wanted to write the book was to tell you know my, my students and, and other young people and also you know people my age uh you, you know what 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 i'd find what i had found out about little richard and uh you know what the what the real deal is second reason why i wanted to write it was these guys aren't getting any younger uh richard himself is going to be 80 on december 5th of this year and the people who uh, you know, support him, rec- record him, the uh, the side men, the other musicians, the engineers, producers, uh, you know, and, and just contemporaries who knew him, you know, many of them are dead, and, and uh, a lot of them were on their last uh, legs. I, you know, I went up to Macon, Georgia, several times to, to talk to people there, and you know, I saw, you know, talked to a couple of people in assisted uh, living uh, facilities, and a couple I just couldn't talk to because they were too far gone to to converse anymore but uh you know i realized man if i'm going to do this I, I i better get on it now so so uh first off you, your book is centered around tutti frutti um tell us about chapter by chapter briefly you know how is it uh, organized around tutti frutti sure well you know i, I go back to uh to richard's early life in macon because i i wanted to know uh you know where the song came from, and uh, that you know that's an interesting proposition because I, as I said, I, I'm a poet, and uh, you know I write a lot of write and publish a lot of poetry, and a lot uh, you know more general pieces, literary, literary and cultural criticism about where art comes from, and uh, sometimes you just can't say. Uh, you know, sometimes its 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 origins are, are uh, it doesn't mean they're mysterious. It just means that I can't, you know, I can't tap them. I can't put my fingers on them. You know, where did, where did that song or where this poem or, you know, a novel by Tolstoy or an opera by Verdi uh, come from? And you know, it's very easy to make up you know, false causes and false historical reasons for why things happened. But you know, I thought I would begin poking around in in Macon. So uh, you know, the the first couple of chapters are devoted just to a to a deep deep uh, entrance into life in that uh, that wonderful little uh, southern town. Uh, you know, a lot of a lot of the, the things that we think are of as as timeless begin in kind of backwaters. Um, you know, small uh, isolated 
places. I mean, the you know the Italian Renaissance doesn't begin in London or Paris. It begins in you know a little city called Florence, uh, where you know a bunch of people were sort of feeding and uh, you know helping each other, feeding each other spiritually, emotionally, and artistically. And uh, you know the um, you know it didn't take me long to find out that Macon was that kind of place as well. You know Otis Redding. Uh, uh, you know, came out of there. The Allman Brothers went and uh, and recorded there. But uh, you know, even before these these days, uh, there was there was a very specific culture that has also disappeared. And the our, our greatest cultural historian, Griel Marcus, calls it the old weird America, uh, which he kind of takes back to Walt Whitman's time and describes as an America. You know, not a fluorescent lighting and and uh, computers and vitamin enriched foods like the one that you and I are lucky enough to live in at the moment, but you know, an America of of con men and riverboats and uh, sort of Johnny Appleseed figures uh, roaming the world, and you know, just kind of you know, uh, unpredictable strangeness. And you know, Richard grew up in in that kind of kind of context uh a, a couple of figures that uh i talk about in the book that i found were really interesting one was named a guy named doc hudson who uh, ran a medicine show now what a medicine show is is uh a, a, a kind of traveling vaudeville show that peddles something that well i wouldn't say it doesn't work but uh you know it probably didn't do all the things that it uh claim to do i mean I, and i don't know what exactly what doc hudson's formula for his cure-all was but a lot of these guys would get uh you know tap water uh add a good dose of alcohol because that always makes you feel better and then something like peppermint oil to, to make uh the, the stuff uh, smell good and taste good and shake it all up and say you know you you know if you rubbed it on your head it would cure baldness if you were uh, infertile as a woman, and you drank it, you could get pregnant. If your horse was limping, you could rub it on his leg, and your horse would win the race uh, next Sunday. And uh, you know all, all sorts of exaggerated claims. But in, in a day without, uh, uh, you know, <clears throat> well, certainly without television or the internet, and uh, without very much radio or even electricity, uh, these guys would travel from town to town and set up set up a show. And uh, you know, get get some somebody or some bodies to come out or play the banjo or sing and dance and, and uh, carry on, and and then as with a TV commercial, uh, you know, the impresario himself, Doc Hudson, would come out and say, "Thank you all very much. I hope you enjoyed what you just saw here. Now uh, let me show you what I've got here. This is this uh, beautiful uh, bottle of uh, Cure All here. It's a dollar, but today I'm going to give it." you for the low low price of two for 75 cents and you know, they'd have some shills in the audience and they said well yeah i used that stuff and it you know cured my uh, blindness in my right eye and, and uh, you know they would just make out like bandits and one of the uh, the regular entertainers from about age 10 up until he left macon was little richard because he would he he was always a ham he would sing and and dance and the people i talked to in macon said that uh you know they were they remember or their parents remember being in class with him uh you know when he was in elementary school and and uh you know the shenanigans he would get up to when the teacher would leave the room or you know 
when the teacher was right there, he was always getting in trouble. But you know, he was an extrovert just from from the the womb, apparently. And so uh, he would, uh, you know, he he would dance and sing for nothing for a guy like Doc Doc Hudson, just just to show off and just get a a, a round of applause. Uh, so that was, if I'm making uh, Doc Hudson sound kind of like a, you know, shady or sort of uh, shadowy figure of of some kind, he was actually, uh, you know, quite the, uh, uh, you know, the pillar of the community compared to, to the other guy that I found out about, who was a character named Doctor Mobilio, and Doctor Mobilio was the town conjure man, uh, which was a kind of male. Rich. Now, as I say, I, I grew up on a farm in uh, the south of uh, Louisiana, so I, I you know, I, I, I knew about those guys from from the get go. There was always somebody out in the woods who would cure your warts for you, just you know, by through a hypnotic spell or, or something like that. So, um, Doctor Mobilio was uh, a, a guy who had. Uh, you know, uh, well, he had all these uh, accoutrements with him, including a, a, a thing he called the Devil's Child, which was like a shrunken corpse of, of uh, some kind that he would conjure with. And uh, you know, this this was somebody that that uh, you know Richard at least had a lot of contact with, uh, and uh, you know, probably absorbed some lessons from as as far as showmanship and as far. As uh, to use a word that that neither he nor Doctor Mobilio nor Doc Hudson would use to learn about marketing. That is to learn how to sell yourself. You you sell a product. You sell a product by selling yourself. If people like you, they will buy your insurance policy. If people like you, they will buy your uh, peppermint flavored uh, tap water. Or if people like you, they will they will buy your your record, uh, or or believe that you can cure them. By waving the devil's child over their head, so you know. So there were all these all these characters. I'm just, I'm just mentioning a couple of, of the ones I I found about found out about. And you know, the 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 book um, the, the book really begins there, and then we go on into uh, you know the development of uh, of Richard's career. Mm-hmm. Tell your eighty eight dollar story, please. David. <laughs> okay, sure. Uh, the, uh, the the first time I went up to uh, Macon, uh, I, I wanted to uh, to get in, in inside and and have uh, you know egress to a lot of things that I didn't, and I uh, I, d- I didn't have the book contract uh, yet. You know, I was I was just I was thinking about that. I was putting my proposal together. But I, I knew the travel editor at the Washington Post, and I said, "Will will will you commission uh, a, a piece on this charming little city called Macon, Georgia?" And they said, "They said sure. You know, give us 800 words by such and such a date." So I went up there, and I'll, <clears throat> I'll tell you, Matt, when you're walking down the, the street in a little town, and you have a notebook uh, in in your pocket, and you pull it out, and you say, "Hi, I'm writing a story about." Your account. Can I talk to you for a minute? Uh, nine out of ten people will say, "Sure, come on over. Would you like a glass of iced tea?" I just pulled a pan of cornbread out of the, the uh, uh, oven. You know, this this is my cousin Sissy. You know, say hello to the to the man from the Washington Post. Nine out of ten people do that, and and one out of ten people will just drop whatever's in their hands and turn around and take off because they're doing something that they don't want you to find out about, and they. You, they don't want you to put in the newspaper, but 
you know, the waves were breaking my way that day, and, and everybody I met, uh, you know, was so helpful. And so when I, you know, talk to people about the history and where to eat and, you know, the uh, the uh, musical background of, uh, that's so rich in Macon. And then, uh, you know, when I got around to Little Richard, somebody would say, well, you know, you need to talk to, to uh, uh, Hamp Swain, you know, who was the, the DJ uh, there, or you need to talk to Newton Collier, who's who's just the most marvelous man. I'll tell you a little bit more about Newton in a little while. Uh, or find somebody say, well, you know, Little Richard's uh, cousin lives over here in this uh, in this housing development. So, uh, you know, I called her up and, and made an appointment, and, and she said, sure, come on over. So I I go over to uh, where uh, Willie May Howard lives. That's that's Richard's uh, slightly older cousin. And uh, I'm sitting there talking to her, and and she you know, she's very very happy to tell me about you know what he was like as a little boy and how you know mainly how kind he was, how thoughtful uh, he was, and how he he was always trying to take care of uh, other children and take care of his his uh, his mother. You know, he had a real affection for his mother. Suddenly the phone rings. She picks it up, and she says, "Yes, yes. Oh, hello, Richard. How are you? How are you? Well, I'm talking." To a journalist, yes, just a minute. And then she looks up at me and she says, he wants to talk to you. And I said, you know, so my knees are just banging together. I, you know, never seen or talked to Little Richard before. And, you know, as I said, I've been thinking about this since I was 11 years old, right? I mean, I, you know, I, I never th- in my life thought I would, uh, you know, be writing a book about Little Richard, much less talking to him. So I take the phone and I said, hello? And he says, and, and he said, "Who are you?" And I said, "Well, I'm David Kirby." Uh, and I said, "I'm I'm, I'm right. I want to write a book about you." And he said, "What are you doing in my cousin's apartment?" And I said, "Well, you know, I'm I'm looking for background. And I'm just uh, talking to different people. It's a very nice lady, and she's very informative." And he says, "Well, look around you." And I said, uh, "Yeah." And he said, "You can see she's very poor, can't you?" And you know, she didn't look poor at all to me. I mean, it was it was a very nicely turned out place. But you know, who are you know who's going to disagree with Little Richard? So I said, uh, I said, sure. And and he said, well, here's what I want you to do: is I want you to get your checkbook out. I want you to write her a check for five hundred dollars. And you know, and you know, happily, uh, nobody brings a, 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 you know walks around with a checkbook in their pocket. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what I would have done if I'd had it, but uh, I, I, you know. I wanted to keep the conversation going. I wanted to build some goodwill. And I said, um, I said, the truth is, Mr. Pennyman, I don't have a, a, a checkbook with me. Said, but, I, but I did go to the uh, cash machine last night, and I got out $100. I said, if, if, if it would make you feel better, I'd be very glad to, uh, to give uh, your uh, your cousin that money in, in you know in, in compensation for her time and and her uh courtesy and and he said uh he said all right he said, put her back on so um he, he puts willie may back on and i i could i could hear him i mean he didn't he didn't really need a telephone he, he was shouting so loudly and and and, and he said uh, and he said, he said, the man's going to give you some money. Where's your purse? And she said, what's well, in the other room? He said, go get your purse. And so she goes, gets some purse. And, she, and he comes back, and you can hear him say, got your purse? And she said, got my purse. And, he's, and he, said, uh, he said, get your wallet out. And she gets her wallet out. And he says, 
get, get the phone back to the man. She gives the phone back to me and he says, he says okay, get your money out. So I, I opened my, my wallet and I didn't have $100. I had $88 because I'd gotten the money the night before to go to a concert in, uh, in Megan. I said, uh, Mr. Pennyman, I said, I'm sorry, I only have $88. And, uh, he said, that's okay. He said, he said, he said, uh, he said, hand it to my cousin and give her the phone. And I hand it to her cousin and he says, you got the money? She says, I got the money. He said, put it in your wallet. I said, I got it in my wallet. He said, Put it, put your wallet, your purse. Put it, she said, now take it in the other room. Take it in the room. And then, so she goes back and you know, you know, it, it, you know, it's just like a tennis match. You know, with just wallets and monies and purses and cousins, you know, uh, you know, uh, flying all around the room. And finally, he comes back. So I signal that I want the phone, and and he says, I did it. And and and, and he said, well, thank you. And I said, listen, uh, you know, I do want to follow through with this book. And I said, uh, would you give me your telephone number? I would love to. Uh, talk to you sometime he says i'm not at home right now i'm in baltimore and i said well that, that's okay and i'll wait until you are home but uh i really need to talk to you and he, and he said uh, he said well i can't do that he said uh yeah i gotta get off now and i said you know please please click and that you know that i thought that was it uh i, I thought that was it for a while but um anyway i you know i i ended i I went back to talking to, to Willie Mae Howard. We had a great old time. Got up and hugged. And, you know, I'd, I'd put on a sports coat and I brought her some flowers because I didn't want her to think I was just some, you know, parasite. I'm sure she has a lot of contact, as people do, with uh, with, with fans. And so, you know, we had a, a great old time. And I walked into the, into the parking lot and I thought, did I just give $88 to little Richard's cousin that I just met and, and talked to him on the phone? And, I said, yeah, I did. So, you know, I called everybody I could think of <laughs> and, and and told them my story. So so, so that's part of the old weird America coming up right there. He, he got me. He got me, yeah. He, uh, you know, I mean, uh, I, I was uh, – I didn't stand a chance. And I'm so glad I'd got, not gotten two or $300 out of that ATM machine because I'm, I'm sure, uh, uh, you know, Willie Mae Howard would have been licking her thumb and and, uh, and, and counting up those bills. Uh so you know, so you know, I spent the rest of my time in uh, in Macon, and went home, went back, and uh, you know, wrote my wrote my book, uh, which was well, it's it's the it's the most fun I've ever had uh, writing anything. You know, if that book disappeared, uh, if somehow all the, the the copies of it in the world disappeared, you know, I would sit down and write it again because I just had so much so much fun doing it. But I didn't actually talk to to Richard again. Um, until after the book was finished, um, well, that's not quite right. I, I did see him. I saw him at a uh, at a concert, and I went and I talked to him very briefly backstage. But I didn't talk to him on the phone again until um, until after the book had already been published. And someone slipped me someone whose name may not be uh, mentioned because he's very pri- uh, private about it. Someone slipped me his cell phone number. And so I would I would call him from uh, time to time. I, I haven't spoken with him uh, recently, and I didn't want to bother him too much. He went through a very painful hip operation, a hip replacement, two years ago, and I'm not uh, you know quite sure if there's any blame to be offered. But I've, you know I've heard that it didn't go well, uh, that it was botched in some kind of way. And uh, you know when you see him, you see him on TV and live performances now. And he, he always comes out in a wheelchair because, uh, you know, it's it's very hard for him to walk. And then he, you know, he scoots over into his piano, and he's the the little Richard from from 50 years ago. But uh, 
he's a very interesting guy to, to talk to on the phone because, you know, there, there are four or five little Richards, and, and uh, I never knew which one I was going to get. And, and, uh, and sometimes he would say, uh, uh, you know, who are you? Who is this? And I'd say, I'm David Kirby. I'm the guy who wrote the book about you. He said, I don't, I don't know anything about any book. And, uh, at, you know, the way people do when they're, when they're in pain. I mean, they, they uh, you know, your, your mind is just uh, all turned around. And then there would be times when, um, you know, we'd have long conversations. And that, that sweet child-like little Richard that Willie May talked about would come out. And, and he would, you know, want to know how I was doing and you know, how things were in Tallahassee and how my family was. And actually, uh, the last time I, I talked to him, my mother-in-law had just died, and uh, so we were talking along, and he, and he said, "What's going on?" And I said, "Well, my my mother-in-law just died." And he and he said, "He said, what was her name?" And her name uh, was her first name was Clarencina. She her father was in Clarence, and she was, uh, you know, they concocted a feminine uh, version of her name. And he and and, uh, and and so I said, her name was Clarencina. And, and he said, "Just a minute." And I heard him rustling around. He said, "He said, I want to write that down. Spell that for me." And uh, <laughs> excuse me, I'm, I'm getting a little uh, choked up here, as I always do when I think about this. And, and I said, "C L," and he said, "C L," and he said, "He said, I have some people here with me now." And he said, "But when they leave, I will pray for her." And I said, "Well, you know, thank you." Thank you so much. And yeah, you know, we talked a little bit more, and I and I I hung up. And you know, I'm not a I'm not a religious person. I don't go to uh, church or or uh, uh, you know anything that's that's organized or or uh, theistic uh, at all. But uh, you know, I, I was just so moved by by his uh, you know his his kindness. And his conviction that that he could do something for me and 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 do something for my my mother-in-law, and then you know afterwards I got to thinking, you know, well, what if there were a God, and and uh, and you know the calls were coming through, you know, and his secretary said, well, uh, you know, little Richard's on the line. I mean, whose whose phone call is God going to take? You know, and here's a fourth grader who wants to do, you know, well on his math quiz the next day. And there's a woman who wants to marry her boyfriend, even though she can't stand him. And and then there's little Richard, you know, and God, God looks up and says, well, I'll, I'll take line three. You know, I'll, I'll talk to little Richard, Melissa, or whatever his, whatever God's secretary's name is. <laughs> Well, let, let's move on to chapter three, which is, which is the chapter about the making of Tutti Frutti. Can you? Oh can, yes. Can yes. you tell us about that chapter and the, sure. the characters involved, please? Sure. Um, you know, the the uh, I always tell my my students because uh, I you know I teach uh, writing courses mainly. I always tell them students my students that art is the deliberate transformed by the accidental. You know, you have to start your your, your process some kind of way. You have to, you know, you know, get up, make make coffee, or drink a Red Bull, or whatever it is, or turn on your computer and get out your paper and your pencil and 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 get organized and and then start to work. But then you have to be open to the little accidents that happen. And it, the the story of Tutti Frutti is is a long uh, story. I won't tell the whole the whole thing, but it's you know it's a classic uh, illustration of that principle because. What happened was uh, Little Richard was touring all over the, the country, 
and he did what what ambitious artists do, which is he sent uh, a demo tape to everybody he could think of, including a man named Art Roop, who uh, was the head of specialty records out in Los Angeles. And the uh, arts uh, producer was a, a legendary guy named Bumps Blackwell. And, uh, you know, the, the package arrived, and Art listened to it, didn't think very much of it, and he gave it to, uh, to Bumps to listen to. And Bumps said, you know, I think that as the, the great producers do, you say, I think there's something here. I think we can work with this guy and, and, and bring it out of him. By the way, Bumps said that when the package showed up, it was wrapped in a piece of brown paper, that looked as though somebody had eaten off of it. You know, I guess they were fried. There's fried chicken grease or something on there, and brown string. And so he opens it up and pulls out this, you know, this uh, you know, reel-to-reel tape, plays it, and says, "Let's do something with this." So they contact Richard, and they decide to go to New Orleans, Louisiana, where Fats Domino is already recording. And now Fats Domino has has this this uh, band that's so tight that, that uh, you know, when these musicians walk into the studio, you know, the, the clocks reset themselves to, to their time, you know, it's not, not the other way around. So, uh, you know, here's, here's this, this band that's already, because Bumps hears this, this voice of Little Richard that's not, not all that distinctive, not all that great, but he thinks if he marries it to that tight New Orleans sound with the funk and the syncopation in it, you know, he's going to get something out of it. So they get little Richard in the studio, and, and Richard is, is, is a wild man. You know, he never took music lessons. He bangs on the, on the uh, piano, plays everything in one key. Uh, you know, the, the, um, the piano player, a guy named Huey Piano Smith, said, you know, this, this guy's terrible. Uh, you know, he just can't, you know, he can't play. You know, if we, whatever we do, we can't let him play the piano. Uh, and and so there they are in the studio, and they were there for for three days. And uh, the the uh, the, the, uh, the the specialty records uh, recording of, of Richard are available. In fact, it was just remastered and reissued. I just wrote a review of it for a, a music journal. Uh, the the uh, if any of your listeners want to get it, it's just called "Here's Little Richard." It's that first 1957. Album, but as with all the albums that come out these days, there are a lot of bonus audio tracks on it. And there's also a very good, uh, very hilarious uh, interview with uh, Art Roop on there. And you can you can hear some of these these early uh, demo uh, versions that Little Richard did, which which are really just just dismal. But there they are, and and uh, you know, as, as Bumps Blackwell said. Said, you know, Richard sounded like Mickey Mouse. He sounded like Mickey Mouse. He didn't sound like the, the guy that that uh, we know today. So, you know, the, you know, they're practicing and, and uh, rehearsing and not getting away and taking breaks. Finally, towards the end of of the uh, of of the session, they decide to go to a place called the Dew Drop Inn, and Little Richard, uh, you know, who can't stay still to this day for more than five seconds. Uh, while they're waiting for their food to come, jumps up and goes over to piano, and starts singing this this uh, vile and scabrous song called Tutti Frutti, which which has some uh, you know uh, sexually charged lyrics to it, and he's banging away and singing and you know wagging his behind, and Bumps Blackwell says that's it, that's it, that's what we want, and uh, and he says let's go back and record that, but we can't record those lyrics. 
uh, but I like the wah ba ba la bamboo and the tutti frutti and all this kind of stuff. So we just can't use those lyrics. So meanwhile, around Cosmo Matasso's little studio in uh, in New Orleans, and by the way, speaking of the old weird America, Cosmo Matassa owned an appliance store, and like a lot of guys in in uh, in the fifties owned appliance stores, he he ran a line of jukeboxes to local joints. And uh, one day the light bulb came on, and he thought. Uh, you know, rather than get these 45 records and, from somebody else and put them in there, why don't I record my own records? So there, among the, the waffle irons and, and the, uh, the, the pole lamps, Cosmo Matassa clears out a little space. Talk about the old weird America, right? He clears out a little space and makes a recording studio. It's now a laundromat. It's on the corner of Dauphine and uh, Rampart in New Orleans. Uh, but, you know, he, he moves some of the stuff aside and staples some uh, egg cartons to the wall, runs in some lines, and sets up some mics, and there they are. And when I mean set up mics, I mean he had three mics. Uh, so that the singer would sing, and then if it was time for a sax solo, you know, he would step aside, and the saxophone player would, 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 uh, would step up. The drummer often was out in the hall, because if the drummer was right there in the room, it would overpower everything. So they put the drummer you know, out in the hall with the mops and, and the broom. So, you know, just it was so, everything was held together by... You know about uh, scotch tape and and cardboard. So anyway, they 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 rush back to the to the studio, having heard um, Little Richard sing "Tutti Frutti" at the at the Dew Drop Inn, and there'd been a woman who was hanging around. Her name was Dorothy Labastri, who was a kind of pearl and white uh, glove kind of person, and uh, she'd been hanging around as as people hung around studios in those days, with you know trying to get. Um, Cosmo Matassa and, uh, and and Bumps and the people to record her songs, and uh, and Bumps said, "Okay, she said we're going to get Dorothy to write some clean lyrics to this song." Richard sang the song, and he said, "I can't." And he said, "Why not?" He said, "I cannot sing that song before this woman." She was actually a teenager; she was maybe seventeen, eighteen years old. And and he said, "Okay, face the wall." And sing the song. So little Richard swings around, and faces the wall, and he sings it. And Dor- Dorothy, you know, nods and chews on her pencils. Says, "Give me a couple of minutes." And she goes out, and she writes a song that's essentially on the surface about ice cream. You know, uh, it's uh, you know the, the ice cream with the little nuggets of uh, vanilla ice cream with little uh, nuggets of uh, candied red and green fruit in it. And uh, and comes back in. And Richard says, "I can do this." And uh, you know. In, in, in three takes, three takes, they, they nail the song. And the one, the one you hear uh, on the radio or on uh, you know your, your CD or your iPod, the one you hear today is that third take, uh, which is you know it's 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 raw, it's crisp, it sounds as though it was recorded yesterday in a high tech studio, and it was recorded in this dusty old you know. Dump, you know, next next door to uh, you know this week's special on the uh, on the vacuum cleaners. So um, you know, you, you see here, Matt, a, a real kind of genius on the part of somebody like Bumps. You know, uh, Barry Gordy Jr., who founded Motown Records, is was pretty famous for saying, "I, I don't want to make songs for Black America. I want to make songs for Young America." So he got you know a lot of uh, uh, you know clever songwriters like like Smokey Robinson and cajole them into writing 
you know, uh, you know, uh, essentially, uh, you know, fairly heavy uh, rhythm and blues and funk tunes, but you know, w- w- with a lot of the adult stuff just kind of pushed to one side, and an air of uh, innocence, you know, pumped in, in in its place. So when you when you listen, and of course I didn't think about this when I was 11 years old, but when you when you listen to to Tutti Frutti, which sound which sounds like a two minute and 26 second song about ice cream uh you know you know that he's talking about something else <laughs> just the way you know when the beatles sang their songs you know the parents thought well these guys are nice you know, look at they have these mop top haircuts and they wear you know collarless suits they seem like clean cut young men but you know the 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 girls knew you know they you know there's a there's a, there's a savagery and a sexiness under, underneath that comes through not in the lyrics but but in the sound even in the, the the suggestiveness of the lyrics, though, of course, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's all about appetite. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's all about appetite. The, the original, the, the original was a song of no length. It was a club anthem, and uh, Richard would sing it in uh, in uh, you know uh, roadhouses all, all over the South. And uh, as as uh, I, I talked to Cosmo Matassa, who's now in his eighties. Uh, when I was writing the book, and he said that you know the way it worked was, if you walked in the club and you had a and you were wearing a blue suit, you were in the song. You know, see the man with the blue suit on. You know, he can do that thing all night long or something. And so you know, it was, it was improv- improvisational and, and raw and and endless and just depended on its own bubbly fizziness to carry it along. And Bumps Blackwell said, "Let me get that. Let me." Let me cut it, let me clean it up, let me package it, and pow, mm-hmm. you get tutti-frutti. So, so uh, talking about Little Richard a little more broadly and, and his, his, his celebrity, his stardom, as a, as a character, uh, uh, one of the things that, always, that has to be talked about, I think, is maybe not in his mind, but in everybody else's mind, there's this struggle with you know, sexuality, with race, with Secularism and and the sure. sacred. Um, can, can you uh, package that all up for us, please? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. He, you know, he was uh, his own worst enemy in in a way because, uh, uh, you know, one thing I found as as a as a teacher who teaches people how you know how to write poetry. Your poetry can't be taught. Sure, it can I can I can teach you how to write a poem in an afternoon. But you have to like to do it, and and uh, you know it, what it does. The process of composition breaks up a lot of uh, you know old-fashioned and and uh, staid ideas that you had, and and things come tumbling out that you might not be prepared to to deal with. And uh, you know I think something like that happened to Little Richard. You know he was uh, he, he was unnerved, I think, by his own power. And the the songs that that uh, that we remember him. Four songs like like uh, Tutti Frutti and True Fine Mama, Ready Teddy, Baby, Slip and Slide, Long Tall Sally, Rip It Up. Uh, you know these are songs that came out in a two-year period between 1955 and 1957, and that's pretty much it. I mean he's done you know a few things since, but uh, but you know he just um, you know. But then what else do you have to do? You know it's like. Does, did Tolstoy have to write another War and Peace, you know, or did Shakespeare have to write another Macbeth? No. Uh, so, you know, uh, you know, his his uh, handful of work is is eternal. You know, it's it's timeless. But uh, but but 
you know, at some point he said, "This, you know, this this isn't right." And I think he was, you know, I think he was probably carried away too by by the kind of uh, life that he had to live on the road. I mean, this this is a profession, uh, uh, you know, in which you. Uh, you know, drinking is a way of life. Drug use and promis- promiscuity are right there with it. And Richard had grown up uh, within the church. His father was a was a lay preacher, and uh, he did what you know, fam- what Jerry Lee Lewis famously did, and, and uh, you know, a number, number of other people in those days. Which is, at one point, he said, you know, I, I can't do this anymore. This is the devil's music, and you know, I've got to turn back. To God, the, the famous story is that he was on tour in Australia, and uh, the, the the Sputnik rocket was uh, was was sputtering out in, in the skies above Australia. And he looked up and from the concert stage and saw a, you know a flaming uh, object course through the air, and he saw that as a sign of God that he should shut up. So uh, he uh, you know he did, and then uh, you know he's he sort of been been toggling uh, ever since when i saw him at this show in uh in uh, st augustine he sang all of his own uh music he sang uh actually he sang a lot of a lot of tributes he sang a lot of country and western uh, because uh you know this was something that was big when he was growing up he sang a lot of hank williams songs for example but uh, you know he he sang uh you know this this own, you know, this this bright, savage, sexy music. But when you walked in, there was a little booklet in every seat that was, a, you know, a come to Jesus tract that would, you know, tell you who to contact and how you could get in touch with uh, people who would help you to to save your soul. And during during the concert, you know, he he would, uh, you know, he would he would say, "Don't put a question mark where God has put a period," and things like this, you know. And and he essentially he essentially preached. Now he started out the concert by doing something that that none of the rest of us could do. The first thing he did was he you know banged out a few chords, and he said he said now he said he said I want a big fat white woman to come up on stage and dance. Anybody else, you know, they would have you know petitions against them. Uh, uh, and you know, protest marchers. But he said, "I want a big fat white woman." They said, "I want a, I want a big fat black woman, and I want a big fat Mexican woman too." You know, he gets he loops all Hispanics in, into that one uh, category of Mexican women, and uh, you know, pretty quickly the the stage uh, filled up. Not, uh, <laughs> I, I I don't know how it broke down uh, ethnically, uh, and I, I will say that all almost all of the women were, were pretty slender and, uh, and 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 shapely, but you know. And through the magic of rock and roll, as he played these twenty women or so, they all kind of got plumper and uh, and, and, and juicier. So you know, he starts out on this carnal note, but then throughout, he's talking about uh, about God and Jesus. And when I went to see him in, in the oh, by the way, he did his doctor, uh, he did his Doc Hudson thing. He said, "I'll sign posters after the show." But only the big ones, because there was a five-dollar poster that's about the size of a table mat, and then there was a twenty-dollar one that's uh, in the size of a card table. So I went and got a twenty-dollar one, and I went back to uh, to meet him. And uh, you know, there, there are these big stone-shouldered guards in blue blazers and neckties uh, who talk to you before you go into the, the room where Little Richard is receiving people, and and they they say. Uh, just get the signature, no talking, no touching. I said, okay, okay, okay. But, you know, 
I knew I was going to talk to him, but I knew I had to say something, and I knew I had to say the right thing. Now, Richard, like just about every artist there is, uh, is not particularly fond of fans because uh, almost 100% of them are boring. You know, they'll say, oh, I love you. I'm your biggest fan in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Uh, they're either boring or they're psychos. You know, they're stalkers. So I could see why he would have this buffer set up around him to keep the, the fans away. But, uh, you know, I, I, I thought about that. What am I going to say? What am I going to say? And then I, I said, aha. And, uh, you know, I remember when he held me up for $88. And so... Uh, uh, I, 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 I just started saying his cousin's name over and over again. And, uh, you know, Willie May Howard, Willie May Howard. So when I finally got to the front of the line, he says, all right, who do I sign this for? And I said, um, Mr. Pennyman, Willie May Howard says hello to you. And he looked up and his eyes got big and he said, you know Bill? Because he, he called her, not Willie May, but Bill. And I said, uh, yes. I said, I was in her apartment when I, when I uh, talked to you uh, two years ago, and he said, oh, yeah, I said, I remember talking to you, he said, you gave us some money, didn't you, and I said, yeah, yeah, I did, because you shook me down, you know, no, I didn't say that, but I said, yes, sir, <laughs> I was very happy to do it, so, you know, we talked a little bit, and uh, he, uh, he, he, he said, uh, he said, who should I sign this for, I said, we'll sign it for, for uh, Barbara and David, he said, Barbara, and he writes her name down, David, and he, underneath it, he writes, God, God cares, and underlines it, and, uh, and then, uh, I, you know, I, I said, well, thank you. You know, I'm, I'm still kind of tongue-tied at this point. I said, well, thank you very much. And uh, and he sticks his hand out. And and so, of course, you know, I automatically reach for him, and the bodyguard says, no touching. And Richard says, it's okay, it's okay. So he, he takes my hand, he pumps it, and grabs it with the other hand. And he says, promise me one thing. And I said, I will, I will. What is it? He said, stay close to Jesus. And and I said, okay, okay, I will. And and we, you know, shook hands and and uh, you know, I went out and I thought, uh, man, I, you know, I'd like to say I'd done a better job of keeping his promise because, uh, you know, <laughs> if you're going to promise to stay close to Jesus, you know, you could promise it to the guy down the street or the or the letter carrier or, or the person who works at the drugstore. But man, I just promised it to little Richard Pennyman, you know. So I'm not sure I kept up on my. Uh, promise there but uh you know I, I did get to see that that godly side of him that uh that he keeps gravitating back to but then uh you know it doesn't it doesn't pay the bills uh until he had this this uh, hip operation he would he would be on the road for oh he, he would um you know until very recently he was he was doing 200 shows a year and now it's you know it's not now it's much fewer and uh, i'm sure it's driving him crazy because uh, you know, there's there's nothing like the the, the rush of having a, a, an audience go absolutely crazy for you, as they they did that night when I saw him perform. Mm -hmm. So so David, how is uh, in, in all your wisdom is is Little Richard Penniman going to be remembered? Are, are we going to remember him in a hundred years or? Well, you know, I, I think we will. Uh, you know, he he always shows up. You know, music changes. Uh, you know, it, it's always changed rapidly, and and the delivery system is so is so uh, rapid. I mean, w when I was a, when I was a kid, uh, I, I would let's just say that music was organized uh, vertically. I mean, you know, you'd look up, and above you would be the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, and the hip kids like Dylan, and uh, you know, the, the more traditional kids still liked Elvis, and then there, you know, there were a few others, but everybody sort of sort of you know looked at these super. Uh, 
powers who hung above our, our heads and, and worshipped five or six of them. And now music is, you know, it's, it's super horizontal in, in nature. You know, they're, they're, uh, you, know you, you can record a song with a, uh, with a computer and, uh, and, and you get yourself on YouTube this afternoon. You can make an album and there's a, there's a website called cdbaby.com that will, that will uh, you know, get it out on iTunes for, I think, like 45 bucks or, or, or something like that. So, the, um, you know, the, the, the forest is just getting so much bigger. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's dependent on guys like, like you and me, Matt, and, and people like uh, the ones who publish Rolling Stone and, you know, are always having these, you know, the 500 greatest albums. You know, Richard's always at the 500 greatest singers, you know, the 100 greatest uh, pop songs. He's always going to going to show up there. I mean, Mojo Magazine, uh, you know, had a had a piece a couple of years ago on the 100 greatest songs, and, and Tutti Frutti was, you know, you work your way through, you know, down through numbers, you know, three, two, one. Tutti Frutti is, is uh, you know, identified that magazine as, you know, the, the, the greatest uh, pop song of, of all time. So, uh, you know, it, it, yeah, I think the historians know what, what to do and, and how to get the word out. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's no longer common knowledge that, you know, the world is ruled by John, Paul, George, and, and Ringo, you know, and, and uh, you know, if, uh, if I ask my, if I ask ten students uh, what, you know, to name four bands that they listened to in the last 24 hours, you know, I'll get 40 different bands. So, uh, you know, this is a good thing, by the way. I'm, I'm not one of these old guys who's complaining about the, uh, you know, the, the new protocols. It, you know, it, it's a good thing. And, but, but there's a place for uh, Little Richard in there, and, and I think people will always listen to him and I'll always see him and always know uh, how important he was and how important he is. And he's mm-hmm. going to be 80. Happy hey. birthday, Little Richard. On December 5th, you say? December 5th, yeah. Fabulous. Well, David, um, I want to thank you for writing the book. It was, it was a wonderful read, um, and I, I want to thank you for being on on the show. Thank you for having me on the show. You don't have to thank me for writing the book. It was it was its own reward, Matt. But it's <laughs> great talking to uh, music about you, uh, talking about music <laughs> with you, and uh, uh, I, I look forward to hearing the playback. And th- thanks so much. And uh, let me let me see if I can write another one. We'll talk again. <laughs> All right. Thanks, David. Okay. Thank you. You've been listening to a conversation with David Kirby about his book, Little Richard, The Birth of Rock and Roll, published by Continuum in 2009. Check back with new books and popular music regularly for interviews with authors of books about popular music. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. Thanks for listening.